You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. The following interview is from the Newscape archives and was recorded at FMR 101.3 FM in Cape Town. On the line now is Sky News Asia correspondent Holly Williams. Holly, how long have you been associated with China, first of all? What's your history with the country? I've lived here on and off uh, for over 10 years. and Most of that time I've worked as a journalist. But actually the first time I visited China, uh, I came as a 15-year-old. That was in the early 1990s um, on an exchange program. And I actually lived part-time in a Chinese boarding school uh, and part-time with a, a Chinese family. And that was when China really uh, captured my imagination for the first time. Yes, it's captured everyone's imagination, certainly from an economic point of view and from a South African point of view, because we dig stuff out of the ground and the Chinese buy it. And there's been a huge stink over the last 24 hours, which you probably picked up about Archbishop Desmond Tutu's invitation to the Dalai Lama to his 80th birthday being scuppered because of a visa nicety. Now, this is the second time this has happened. We'll get to that later on, although, of course, it's not your job to comment on SA Chinese relations. But Give us a sense of the change in China since the mid-1990s when it first captured your imagination, the change economically and in terms of its power and ambition. I think, to start off with this, with the way that people's lives have changed here in China, um, it's really extraordinary. When I first came here, um, I live on the main street of Beijing, and I remember being on this street in, in 1992, and there were still um, a lot of horse-drawn carts that you would see on the road. Um, very few private cars, um, very few vehicles at all, actually, uh, on the road. A lot of people were still wearing Mao suits, um, you know, that kind of communist-style suit that we associate with China in the 1960s and the 1970s. Yes. If you go on the street now, that same section of road, it's filled with, with luxury shops. Um, it's filled with luxury cars. I can hardly walk out my front door now without falling over a Bentley or a or a Porsche Cayenne or, or, or a Lamborghini. So in that sense, um, life for Chinese people has um, has changed beyond recognition. Yes, it has. So there is material and visible manifestations of the power of China and the economic policy that was initiated just over 30 years ago, which has liberated the country, in many people's eyes, economically anyway. Do you think that South Africa should be fairly wary of China and its power. We have been sanctioned almost economically via this Dalai Lama visa issue. Were we right not to stand up to China? Are they vindictive economically in your experience? Well, let me go back to the question of whether South Africa should be wary of China. I, I think that um, everyone should be wary of China, not because um, the, the Chinese are bad people. They're not. Um, not because the Chinese government is a, a bad government, because it isn't necessarily a bad government at all. Many of the things that it's done have been very good and, and very positive. I think everyone should be wary of China um, simply because it's a rising superpower, um, because the Chinese, for historical reasons, tend to see the world as a zero-sum game. They, they see the world in terms of very uh, harsh uh, real politics. Um, and uh, I think for that reason, uh, the rest of the world should, just as a matter of common sense, uh, be, be wary of China and its ambitions and its intentions. 
Yes, I was going to come on to ambitions and power. It is a very powerful country. It usurped uh, Japan as the world's second biggest economy just this year. And by 2025 or 2040, depending on which investment bank you believe, it'll take over from the United States to America. Once it's done that, of course, then there is the military aspect to consider. Do they have military aspirations? And is there any saber rattling that suggests we should be even more wary of this aspect of uh, Chinese development? There's certainly um, saber rattling in the sense that China's um, expanding its, its military power. Um, look at some of the things that they've come up with in the last year or two. Um, they now have an aircraft carrier. Okay, they bought it from someone else and they refurbished it, but they have an aircraft power, and that's a sign of the times, a sign of China's rising power. Look at their space ambitions. Okay, once again, the technology is 40 years old. It's nothing to be particularly impressed by, but they have a space program. They're a space power, and they've made it clear that they have military intentions in space as well. In 2007, they shot down one of their own uh, satellites in a kind of Star Wars-style manoeuvre, and we understand from, from WikiLeaks um, that they've um, conducted similar tests since then. So they, they certainly have uh, military ambitions. But I always think it's really useful to see the world from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, and particularly from the, the perspective of the small group of men who really run the country from within the leadership compound here in Beijing, the Zhongnanhai compound. I think it, it can be dangerous because from the perspective of, of other countries, and particularly Western countries, we can assume that what's driving China is this towering ambition to be a superpower. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. From the perspective of the, of the Chinese Communist Party, what they really want, their aspiration, is to stay in power. And to do that, they have to keep 1.3 billion Chinese people on side. Now, okay, it might be a one-party state, but what those 1.3 billion people think still really matters. And those people have got really used to living in a country where there's 9, 10, 11, 12% growth. The Chinese Communist Party has to keep the ball rolling. It has to keep the resources flooding in. It has to keep the economy growing. It has to keep exports going out the door. And so in many ways, its military ambitions are tied to its desire to stay in power rather than... Um, uh, being driven by an ambition to be a superpower per se. 1.3 billion people, you sound as though it's, you almost paint the picture that every single one of them has benefited. That is clearly not the case. I mean, there's always been very visible footage of whole villages and towns, hundreds of thousands of people being displaced by, for example, dams that have been built. So there is a case of the haves and the have-nots, isn't there? I mean, when you trip over your Porsche Cayenne at the same time, a few hundred miles away, there must be a village that is fairly impoverished. Is that the case? I think that it's, um, it's actually quite rare to find a Chinese person who hasn't benefited economically in some way from China's rise. But also what you're saying um, is critically important because um, whilst um, people on the bottom rung of Chinese society may have more disposable income than they've ever had before, they've seen the gap in incomes also uh, you know, increase out of control. So they may now be able to afford a, a motorbike or a tractor on their small piece of land, but then they're seeing the person who owns the luxury car down the road. And on top of that, I think that the problem for some of China's poorest people is that um, for many decades they lived under the tyranny of a one-party state, a government that can do pretty much whatever it wants, especially um, in terms of those people, some of China's uh, poorest, most powerless people. Now, they, that, that tyranny continues, 
but they also have the tyranny of a market economy. So they can't rely on the iron rice ball that used to keep them fed and keep them clothed and give them medical care. They have to leave their land and go and work in factories for fairly low wages. So they live uh, in the gap, essentially, between these two tyrannies, the tyranny of a one-party state uh, and the tyranny of a market economy. Let's talk about tyranny, and let's talk about tyranny when it comes to your reporting, for example. Are you monitored by the Chinese authorities? Um, uh, Yes, we are, although... Interestingly, over the last few years, um, the amount of um, overt monitoring has decreased. Prior to 2007, uh, the regulations in China were that whenever we left Beijing, and and oftentimes actually within Beijing itself, um, if we wanted to go and film something, we had to apply to local officials. And then um, uh, under the regulations, we were accompanied by those officials. We often had to pay them um, as a courtesy for them monitoring us. And then they would interfere in every interview that we did. And it obviously was a huge obstacle in terms of conducting our reporting. The upshot of that was that many journalists worked outside the law uh, in that period, and and I was certainly included in that. Um, I wouldn't apply for permission to do interviews. I would go along and conduct them, and then I would run the risk of being detained by the police. And that happened very regularly. They would arrive at the scene of our interview, uh, stop us, demand that we hand over our tapes, um, we would try and avoid that where possible, but sometimes we would have to hand them over. We'd be taken to a local hotel or a local police station where we would have to write uh, a self-criticism. We'd be interviewed by the police, um, and then we'd be held for sometimes just an hour. I think the longest I was held was around 12 hours, um, and then we'd be released. As part of um, the lead-up to the Olympics, China agreed uh, that foreign journalists would have reporting freedom. Um, and it, so it instituted these new regulations saying that we were free to go anywhere and interview anyone um, except for uh, the Tibetan Autonomous Region. Um, and that actually worked pretty well. Uh, a lot of local police officers uh, didn't necessarily buy into the new regulations or they weren't aware of the new regulations, but on the whole, it, it, it worked quite well for us. This year, uh, there's been what I would consider a backward step. Um, uh, the Chinese authorities, very worried by what they see happening in the Arab world, um, have launched a kind of political crackdown that's been felt mainly by Chinese political dissidents, many of whom have been locked up or or intimidated. Um, But we've also found it much more difficult to um, do the kind of interviews that we were used to doing over the last two or three years without police interference. You often see little flashpoints. It doesn't get particularly well reported in the Western press because there are too many other things for the Western press to focus on. But you often see skirmishes in um, areas that maybe we're not familiar with, as familiar as we are with Shanghai, Beijing, etc. Is there unrest within the country because of, for example, the massive increase in prices of foodstuffs like pork and rice? That's a really interesting question. First of all, there's a lot of unrest in China. According to the government's own statistics. Uh, There are several hundred um, what they call mass incidents um, every day. And that can be anything from, you know, a dozen people standing up at the door of their local government angry about um, the confiscation of land to the fact that right now in Beijing there are several thousand long-term protesters who have moved to Beijing from the provinces to try and uh, get some kind of justice uh, from the central government. Once again, another really big issue there is land confiscation. So uh, as this uh, class of property developers and government officials 
develop the land. They often confiscate land from peasant farmers or they knock down buildings in poor urban areas and they give the local people what they would consider to be inadequate compensation. And that's been a real, um, that's been a real point of conflict actually for several years now in China. What you say about inflation, I think, is really interesting. I don't think that um, any of the protesters that I've seen would say that they are in Beijing or they are knocking on the door of their government, um, their local government, because they're worried about inflation. But I think that inflation plays into some of the existing um, sources of unhappiness and unrest in China. Um, we don't have runaway inflation in China, but it's certainly problematic. And the official official figures don't really show where the problem is because. The big problem is with food inflation, um, and particularly pork. It's difficult to overstate how important pork is to the Chinese. It's, it's the meat that every Chinese person, unless unless they are of, the, of, of a Muslim uh, Chinese person, wants to see on their table yes. um, every evening. And pork prices have increased um, uh, have increased by about fifty percent over the last uh, twelve months. Um, and it's a real source of anxiety here in China. We've also seen rents going up, uh, and we've seen a lot of a lot of wage pressures. So we tend to think of China's economy as a real success story, and and of course, in the long term, it really has been. This country has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. They're predicted to grow at 9.5 percent this year. But it's not to say that there aren't weaknesses within the Chinese economy, and that they don't play into social unrest. When I look at China, I look at a sort of unruly adolescent, and it's almost unreal some of the projects that are, are unveiled by the Chinese press because they want the West to know how good they are. I mean, the high-speed train network, for example. I mean, it takes the city of Cape Town two or three years to decide whether to have a bus transit service in the city and another two to three years to build the blasted thing. But in China, if they want a high-speed train between Beijing and Shanghai, they get one, and it works. So it works for a while. It's disturbed me to see the accident on the high-speed network recently, also the Shanghai subway disaster. And also it disturbs me to see cities that are designed for one million people and there's around 10,000 people living there with art galleries and libraries and theatres and six-lane highways, but absolutely nothing going on. There's a sense of surreal unreality about the country, from my point of view. Yeah, I think that's a good way of um, describing it. Surreal unreality, even here in Beijing, actually, which is, I guess, one of China's most mature cities. You will... Um, Sometimes I won't, won't have been to an area in the city for, say, six months. And I'll go back, and the entire area will have been not only demolished, but you know, entire new buildings have sprung up in its place, and it's, and it's completely unrecognizable. I think a lot of the infrastructure that you're talking about is, is not simply to, to show off either to the West or, or to, to China's own people. Certainly in the last few years, a lot of the building that's gone on has been part of China's attempt to stimulate the economy. They pumped hundreds of billions uh, of dollars into the economy in 2008 to stave off the worst effects of the global slowdown. Um, and uh, you know, that was very effective. But it's not to say that it doesn't create problems of its own. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. Some of the infrastructure hasn't been built to the standards that we would expect, certainly uh, in, in Western countries. And there's a lot of anger about that here in China. We also see these problems with... Um, overcapacity in the housing market and potentially uh, a housing bubble. A lot of economists uh, are worried about that. I don't think it's a housing bubble um, of the We're not going to see what happened in the US and Europe happened here, um, mainly because we haven't seen the same kind of lending practices here, but it's potentially a problem.
So, you know, I still think China's an incredibly impressive economy. When you live here, what, so much of what you see is impressive. It's extraordinary. But it's not to say that there aren't bumps along the way. Lots more foreigners are visiting China. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, it was a quaint oddity for somebody to go to China and come back with um, stories of horses and carts in Beijing High Street. But today, it's a tourist destination and more Chinese tourists are traveling the world. How do Chinese people view the West? And the reason I ask this is because I just noticed the other day when Tim Geithner, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, mentioned the Chinese currency and how it is too strong and it, or it rather should be allowed to strengthen and it's too weak at the moment. The, the Chinese immediately picked up on this and said, you just be careful, otherwise this could result in a trade war. Is there still hostility and suspicion about foreigners, particularly Americans? You know, it's just such a big country and different Chinese people um, often seem to be living in, in different centuries that it's really difficult to generalize about what people's attitudes are to anything, and that includes the West. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I'm European-looking. If I go to some Chinese villages, you know, people there haven't seen a Western person, in a European person in the flesh before. I'm, I'm a real oddity. It's like I've arrived from outer space. Um, and then you contrast that with many people who live in, in, in sort of first-tier Chinese cities, Beijing, uh, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and they don't bat an eyelid at seeing a, a European person or a foreigner. They, you know, they couldn't be less interested, um, or they might just want to be my friend because they just see me as a person rather than as a foreigner. And I guess at the, at the other end of the spectrum, what you have, particularly in Chinese cities, particularly amongst the growing middle class and the growing elite, is a, is a sense of nationalism. Um, I think a lot of it comes from a very good place, um, pride that China's uh, dragged itself up from being a poor and fairly insignificant country to being a rising superpower. But it's not to say that nationalism in China uh, isn't dangerous. Um, it, it, clearly, it clearly could be dangerous, and it clearly has an impact on the way that the government behaves. Um, I think it definitely plays into this dispute about currency. Of course, the West says to China, you are keeping your currency uh, at an artificially uh, low value. You're giving yourself an advantage in global trade, and that's unfair. And, of course, the, the Chinese answer to that is, um, you know, there's, there's no rule against manipulating our currency. Most uh, countries do it. Um, we are, uh, although we're a big economy, many of our people are still poor. We're trying to enrich them. This, this gives our economy um, an advantage, um, and you know, we don't buy into your criticism. I think often the Western response to that is, okay, you know, maybe that's true, but we're all part of this global economy. It clearly has imbalances because, you know, you have this three trillion US dollars in foreign currency reserves that you've earned by exporting so much more than you, than you import. Um, and so you should do something about that. You should be a responsible global player. And I think that if China were to be honest, and it's not necessarily particularly honest on this front, it, it would probably say two things. One is, okay, maybe that's true, but our people have got used to living in a country where there's 9, 10, 11% growth. And if it drops to 8%, then we're looking at unemployment. And we, the Communist Party, simply can't run that risk. And secondly, we have increasing nationalism amongst the middle class and the elite. And if we allow our currency to rise in value, we'll look weak in front of those people, and we can't afford to do that. Holly, we have to talk about human rights. I know you spend your time unearthing stories and you do some great work on Sky News in that regard. How bad is China's human rights record? Some of 
some of the stories that we've covered have been have been very upsetting, actually, on a, on a personal level. I um, China executes more people than than uh, the rest of the world put together. Um, and one of the most uh, upsetting stories that I covered was um, about people who had been uh, wrongly sentenced to death in China. And the use of torture by the Chinese police is is routine. Um, so we were looking at people who had been tortured into confessing a crime and then um, executed as a result. I'll tell you something interesting, though. I was having lunch the other day with, uh, with a Chinese friend, and she has actually worked with foreign journalists as well. And she was saying to me, you know, examples of things like torture and, and executions, of course, they're what you should cover as a foreign journalist. I absolutely understand why you, Holly, want to cover these kind of stories. Um, but she said, you know, the thing for ordinary Chinese people, the kind of human rights that ordinary Chinese people care about, are less things like that, which often they won't come into contact with, but more things like how they're treated in hospitals, the kind of treatment when they, that they get when they walk into the door as a Chinese taxpayer into a hospital, where often they can't expect uh, decent health care uh, without paying a, a bribe to the doctor, um, and where they can expect to be treated with, you know, with utter disrespect um, by the people inside that hospital. Or, um, she said, the treatment that we can expect at schools and universities, where we can't get a good place unless we, we pay a bribe to the school or to the university. Or the treatment that we get in our just ordinary interaction with the Chinese police, who know that they can treat us however they like, and um, we really can't question that. So I think that's interesting. I think that, um, of course, the examples that we like to highlight as foreign journalists are these very extreme cases. But I also think that amongst ordinary people in China, there's a real hunger um, for uh, greater human rights and also for the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, to, to be held to account according to the law. Holly, you sound as though I get the sense that you have a great affection for the country. You're fascinated by the country. Are you going to stay there? And if so, does that mean that you are hopeful that the brash start that we've had over the last 20, 30 years uh, could be tempered somewhat and things can improve in all areas of Chinese life? Well, you're right. I really do love it here. I find it really fascinating. Um, I, I like and admire the Chinese people. Um, and as a journalist, what's great is the stories that people have to tell. You know, they've just seen so much, so much extraordinary change in their own lives. And it's really, um, it's really interesting uh, hearing about that. I don't know what the future holds for China. I think it's a very unpredictable place. But I will say one thing that I think is quite interesting. Um, a lot of Western people assume that the Chinese people hunger for the kind of multi-party democracy that we have uh, in the West and in, in, in many other countries. And actually, in my entire time in China, I think I can count the number of Chinese people who have said that they would like that kind of, that kind of democracy tomorrow on the fingers of my two hands. Mm. You meet people who say that they would like that kind of democracy at some point in the future, but hardly anybody wants China to become a democracy tomorrow. However, what a lot of people really hunger for is a fair court system um, that works well and that holds the Chinese government to account. Um, what a lot of people hunger for is more freedom in the media, is journalists who can actually go and, and tell the truth about what's happening in China. And just 
uh, more freedom in their own personal lives and less corruption on the part of local government officials. I think that's the really big challenge for the Chinese government, and I think it's what ordinary Chinese people are most frustrated by. And I think that how that plays out um, is going to be a huge determining factor in what happens in China over the next two or three decades. Holly, I'd love to speak much longer, but we've run out of time. But just very, very finally, should we all be learning Mandarin? Yes, um, not because of the rise of China, but because it's just such a great. Uh, interesting, wonderful language. Uh, go and learn some tomorrow, and and learn the writing as well. It's wonderful. Holly Williams, thank you so much for your time. Holly is Sky News's Asia correspondent. That podcast was proudly brought to you in association with ShareNet.co.za. Visit strictlybusinesspodcast.com and subscribe to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox.